Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. A traditional Tibetan proverb tells the story that every valley has a river and every village has its own language. These languages are an important part of the Tibetan identity and my guest today is an expert on Tibetan language, its politics, identity and history. Sering Shakya holds the Canadian Research Chair in Religion and Contemporary Society in Asia at the Institute for Asia Research at the University of British Columbia. He is also co-lead of the Himalaya Project and currently serves as the President of the International Association of Tibetan Studies. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. Can we start by talking about that proverb that I said in my introduction? And perhaps if you could tell me about the diversity of Tibetan languages and, and maybe use yourself as an example. How many languages did you become familiar with in your upbringing and your childhood? And how many did you learn? And there are all different aspects of what it meant to be Tibetan, I suppose. We have to sort of historicize the context in which Tibetan language is shifting today. Firstly, we have the sort of the historical sort of aspect of Tibetan language, that is Tibetan language spoken in the territory inhabited by Tibetan people. Mm. You have a big divide between spoken language and written language. Every valley would have its own dialect or language, what you call it. Now the linguists disagree whether these different uh, dialects are language or dialect. And there's a larger sort of professional linguist debate about where does Tibetan language fit, whether it's a part of a large family or Sino-Tibetan family, or is this another group called Tibeto-Burmese family. There is a family called Tibeto-Burmese or Sino-Tibetan, which stretches from northern Pakistan down to southern Yunnan in China and is as Gangsu in Chinese province, which Tibetan call Amdo in Qinghai. So it's a wide geographical spread. Along that is that you have the Himalayan belt, which also you'll find many different speakers of Tibetan languages. What does that mean for somebody who is living in this area? Can you hear a diverse number of languages, say, within a city block. What's the experience mm, of that? Until about 1980s, we can say Tibet was very much a rural community. Diversity language ex- survived because there was actually very little communication or mobility. Mm. Of course, there was a trade and religion and pilgrimage, but generally there was a very stable sort of settlement of communities there, and which um, meant that each of these dialects are not mutually understandable. Even some, uh, you know, next valley, they will speak a different dialect and it will be not mutually understandable. Mm. So today, there's a rapid social change happening. First is the development of education. The literacy rate has increased and there's a sort of schools teach standard Tibetan. That's one aspect. Then also people are going to schools, to urban area. So there is sort of mingling or mergings of languages happening. Then we have, like myself, I grew up as a child in Kathmandu. Then there's the Tibetan diaspora, people who are in Melbourne. So we are facing another different context. So in my own case, as a child growing up in Nepal, we had to know Tibetan, which is our home language. Then we need to know Nepali as sort of language of the bazaar and market. Then we need to know Hindi because it's the language of entertainment, Mm. you know, the Bollywood. Then we need to know English because it's the language of education. So in many contexts of Himalayas, I think 
Today, most people are bilingual or have several languages they work with. Today, in the Tibet, under Chinese territory, there is a bilingual education in the sense that people have to learn Chinese and they speak Tibetan at home. But there's an increasing encroachment of Chinese language through school, media, and government force. You know, China has this uh, one country, one language policy, and they're intolerant of diverse languages. So what challenges does this give to preserving the different languages that you get amongst the Tibetan population? I think one of the biggest challenges now, I think would say every Tibetan family faces is, do you want to send your children to English medium school, Chinese medium school, or Tibetan medium school? Mm. You know, you have to evaluate what are the prospects of your child going to Chinese medium school or English medium school. They have sentiment, they want their children to continue speaking and using Tibetan, but same time for practical and pragmatic reasons and job prospects and educational prospects, you know, you want them to go to uh, Chinese medium or Tibetan medium. So this is the push and pull factors. People always talk about sort of preserving the mother tongue, but they still face a practical reality of this hegemonic language that they have to deal with. Can I pull you up on on one word you just used then, mother tongue? How much does that apply to Tibetan language then? Because I assume that somebody who lives in one area and identifies as Tibetan and somebody who lives in a completely different country and identifies as, as Tibetan might have very different languages. Yeah, this is also very correct. So when we talk about sort of preserving, there's nationalistic project or identity politics. We say we as a Tibetan, we cannot even communicate to each other. Mm. So our task should be to create a common language between us. So without that, we as a minority or people cannot communicate ourselves and assert ourselves in identity. So there's within the community, there is attempt to promote singular Tibetan language. But in that turn, actually, what about the local language spoken in the community? Do you preserve that or do you erase that? So you have the burden of the sort of hegemonic language, English and Chinese. Then you have the Tibetan nationalism sort of language, which is sort of trying to erase smaller language groups within Tibetan community. Yeah, and then you've got who gets to make that decision. Yeah, That's a big problem. So 2019 is the International Year of Indigenous Languages. Are international Tibetan communities doing anything to recognize this and why or why not? Within China, the use of term indigenous is very problematic. Chinese sees this as very political. To say indigenous uh, seems to assert some prior rights and uh, legal uh, rights. So the Chinese government doesn't like so Tibetan to speak about being indigenous. But at the same time, they do have this now uh, government policies. I said in China, they have this stringent ideology which talk about the multiplicity of languages is detrimental for countries' development. The country's unity can be established by singular language. So there's a really rapid attempt to promote Mandarin as a national language Mm. in that way. But within Tibetan diaspora, there's increasing attempt to create Tibetan textbooks, education materials relevant to the diaspora community. For example, Sydney and Melbourne, the Tibetan communities here are trying to create textbooks for the young Tibetans here, which has relevance to daily life in Australia, not related to what's happening in Tibet. How are Tibetans using and talking about their languages online today then? This is actually really interesting. There's a two shift happened. I noticed it's online. When the first social media appeared, 
people had to write. So there was a great enthusiasm for writing in Tibetan. I would say iPhone saved the Tibetan language because it's very easy. You just shift a key and you can got a Tibetan font. So mm. people were using that. And the modern technology, computing, made it really easy to use Tibetan language. And when that came, there was much more eagerness to use it. So now you have this uh, written language, but that required you to know how to read and write. But now people have moved from writing to voice. WeChat and Facebook video, YouTube videos. Every Tom, Dick and Harris making YouTube videos and creating their own news content. Writing requires some kind of literary skills, mm. you know, and so that will deter people. But now with the voice, actually people are, there's so many discussion groups on WeChat or WhatsApp or in Facebook. Actually, the modern technology is really in providing sort of way in which the language can be preserved and communicated. Tibetans living in Australia, communicating to Tibetans in Boston or India. Technology has really helped. But also this has created some division. You have three types of Tibetan social media. One is from China, Tibetans who only know Chinese, they communicate in Chinese. Tibetans who only know English, who don't know Tibetan, they'll talk only in English. And then there's Tibetans who only know Tibetan. So there's the three separate Tibetan worlds in the social media. Mm. Are you noticing that the same sort of impact also translates into art forms? So language is a big part of both music and literature. So how is the Tibetan language being translated into those mediums? It's very interesting. You know, in Tibetan, we don't have a sort of a, a filmmaking industry. And one of the very creative ways in Tibetans now, both in terms of satire and comedy, they will take a clip from a Western movie or Chinese movie and they dub it and voice over with Tibetan mm. content. And there's a, one guy who does it on Instagram from Paris. And it's very humorous. He always has this uh, Obama or Trump speaking in Tibetan. And he, he writes the script. And, but he does it expertly. It's, you know, there's his lip syncing and everything yeah, matches. Yeah. And that has become very popular because um, in terms of Tibetan, we don't really have a visual content production. So we appropriate some visual images and we put Tibetan voice on it, even like Simpson. But it's not the actual script, but we just put the Tibetan voice on cartoon characters or actual news clips. Mm. And this is very popular now. So how does the Tibetan language adapt to the need for new terms? So say that there's a new technology or something that needs to be described. Is that adapting Chinese words or adopting English words? Or is there an effort to come up with new Tibetan words to apply to these situations? Tibetans, they like to coin words or translate words rather than sort of phonetically adopt English words. Just for example, a computer. Computing it has been sort of adopted in the two ways. One in Eastern Tibet called Lokle, something like electrical brain, and some is called Zikor, which is more like calculator. We are faced with that terms to be adapted. So there's a two trends in translation. Uh, the modern uh, Western terms come, one's introduced through the Chinese, and one is introduced through Tibetan. What is the main source of that translation? But in generally, Tibetans, again, for nationalistic purposes, for example, in verbally, people will say television just every day. But they will never write television. They will write Sukdun Lungti. But no one says Sukdun Lungti. People write it, but people never use the word. 
these are only in the literary form and being sort of correct nationalistically by writing in journals and articles. But uh, in terms of everyday speaking, they're quite comfortable using loan words. Doesn't that kind of create a disconnect between what real Tibetan is and what pure Tibetan is, though? Well, there is uh, always disparity in, in Tibetan language, always between the written and the spoken. Many Tibetans who are fluent Tibetan speaker, they may not understand what is written. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's very different. Written requires education and learning a new set of grammars and terminology. How does the situation of Tibetan languages compare with other languages throughout the Himalayan region? All languages are in a similar situation in that um, we're having to grapple with the bigger hegemonic language, either it's a Hindi or English or Chinese. You know, now most of the Tibetan language or the Himalayan languages, for the first time in history, we face competition through both migration and urbanization and mobility. People are now much more exposed to other languages. So they're having to make a decision. People are faced with the burden of having to abandon their language or adopt another bigger language. And in many cases, you know, you cannot blame because the idea of going to English medium school or Chinese medium school, you think of, say, going to university or further your profession, jobs, particularly among the middle class, they will choose to English medium school, mm. you know, not mm. um, Tibetan medium school. So maybe their children grow up speaking Tibetan at home, but they may not know how to read and write Tibetan. You've come back to the schooling analogy a few times, and I'm just curious, Tibetans are quite fortunate in some ways to have a Tibetan language schooling system in India. Do you think that this is good for the Tibetan community, or would you rather see that students are schooled in maybe Hindi or another language potentially more useful to them in careers going forward? In most schools, either in China and India, Tibetan language is taught as subject. I suppose something like French is taught in Australian schools or something. Okay, it's, yeah, it's, it's yeah. like three hours or four hours a week. Mm. And the rest of subjects are taught in Chinese or English. Biology and chemistry, geography, all in the dominant language. Mm. So this idea is to have up to high school all subjects taught in Tibetan. Biology in Tibetan, chemistry in Tibetan. So this idea is strong and people want that. It's a question of resources. Because as a refugee community, and in China, it's because it's a much more sort of central government decision, how do you go on translating every single textbook on biology? Yeah. So at the moment, it's a pipe dream kind of thing. Yeah. Do you think it's a useful prospect, though? Internationally, when you study the performance of people who learn mathematics or any subject in your own language, and you learn in a second language, the people who learn in your own language do perform much better. Mm, yeah. you know? So actually much better if they are taught in their mother tongue. So what other kind of things are Tibetans doing to develop and protect and preserve their languages, both inside and outside of China and India? I think the main thing is to focus on publication, printing, greater use of Tibetan in everyday lives through like newspapers and radios. Uh, and this has become a very important people listening to Tibetan radio programs or Voice of America in Tibetan language. It's very popular. Mm. So I think social media has really given more impetus. But again, this becomes problematic. You know, these you end up speaking in the standard Tibetan dialect, not the local regional dialect. And so how do you cope with the regional dialects? Yeah, yeah. Am I correct in when you were over here in Australia 
up at CSAA, you were talking about block printing. Is that correct? Traditional Tibetan printing is based on block printing, wood carving mm. and block printing. And that has been for centuries. And then beginning of the 20th century, missionaries coming in introducing metal printing. So Tibetans were aware through missionaries of metal modern technology of printing, but they never adopted. The reason is that there's a taboo against metalwork. Any kind of metal work is seen as a low cost and polluting. So since the majority of the Tibetan written texts are do with religion and Buddhism, you know, you cannot have a polluting element touching as something so pure course, as Buddhism. Yeah. This is not just Tibetan. I think this sort of issue was faced in Islam also. Now that we've bypassed metal printing altogether and just printing out straight from the yeah. computer, I guess yeah. there's less of an issue yeah, I think there is a fundamental social change has happened that, yeah. you know, we no longer see sort of a blacksmith as a taboo and low caste, and this has been social change. Also, China has a particular system of printing and distribution of uh, books, and which I say would really, uh, in some ways, uh, advantages Tibetan, because um, there's a China National Printing Press, which is a national-level printing press, and they have a Tibetan language branch. And then this same printing press has a provincial and there are five provinces like Qinghai, Gangsu, Yunnan, Setuan, and Tibet Autonomous Region. So you have six major printing houses with government subsidies who has to print Tibetan books. Block printing was very expensive and uh, the number of books printed were very small. Today, people are accessing very rare manuscripts and things they didn't have access to very easily. Mm. So the books are distributed homes and people uh, reading in privately at homes. So this is a fundamental change. And another aspect, the Chinese government is uh, sponsoring printing of uh, Tibetan books because I would argue that sort of in the, for the Chinese sort of colonial authority in China, they cannot be seen as just purely coercive force, you know, ruled by coercion. They also want to project China state as a patron of Tibetan culture. Mm. So by printing Tibetan books, they are saying, you know, we are protecting Tibetan culture and we are patrons of Tibetan culture. So this is the two ways in which it benefits the, the Tibetans. At the same time, they're very strict about what they print, I suppose, and the classification of Tibetans as a minority mm. within China. Is it a service that's fully embraced as much as it could be, this sort of translation, or is there always caution as to the motives? It depends on what, during which period. So if you look at this sort of the reform periods of Deng Xiaoping from 1980s, it was very liberal. They were printing a lot of material. But under current regime, it's a much more restriction on what can be printed. Mm. And, what, and there's a less uh, uh, printing uh, of traditional, it's more of translations of party materials. How does the Tibetan diaspora outside of Tibet cope with that then? A lot less restrictions in India, for yes, example. Yes, so, because there's so many monasteries in India, and they now they've moved to not printing or physical copies of books, because a lot of times Tibetan Buddhist book printing is sort of a sponsored by donors and patrons as a way of acquiring merit. Mm. So there are many times there are monasteries and religious organizations who are creating e-books and PDFs, and you can download freely. Today, a lot of Tibetan books are being distributed through as e-books. Yeah, yeah, okay. What a great advent. 
do Tibetan language works translate into English very often? I was wondering if there's something uh, uh, that you wish that people could read in English. That we, no, What's the Tibetan equivalent of Harry Potter that we're missing out on? Well, Harry Potter has been translated into <laughs> Tibetan. I'm sure it has yeah. been. <laughs> A huge number of Tibetan books are translated into English, but primarily they're interested in Tibetan religion, Buddhism. Yeah. So yeah. you have an incredible number of sort of projects both from universities and different Dharma religious groups who are focused on translating Tibetan Buddhist texts into, I mean, there are several publishing houses which only publishes Tibetan books translated into English. Columbia University just brought out an anthology of short stories from Tibet. So there is a process, but you know, just generally, there's not enough translations. Thanks for your time today. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you may listen. You can follow Latrobe Asia on Twitter. We are at Latrobe Asia. And you can follow Sering on Twitter as well. You are. It's Latsere, L H A T S E R I. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening. <laughs>